0: Galatians chapter 3 verses 23 to 29 Now before faith came we were confined under the law kept under restraint until faith should be revealed so that the law was our custodian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith but now that faith has come we are no longer under a custodian For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I see four steps now in this text that Paul takes to get to where he wants to be. And I'll list them for you, and then we'll look at each one briefly. The first step is this. Before faith came, Israel was confined under the law. And the law functioned like a custodian or a tutor or governess or schoolmaster. And it therefore applied restraint and guidance, but it couldn't give the inheritance. Second step, faith came, or Christ came, and with him a movement of faith. Third step, wherever men and women are united to Jesus Christ by faith, they are justified and they become children of God, heirs according to the promise. And fourthly, the final step, and I think this is what Paul really wants to drive home in the context of these false teaching Judaizers, Therefore, we are no longer under law. Okay, so let's go back and look at those one at a time. First step in verses 23 to 24. Now, before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law was our custodian until Christ came. That word custodian or tutor or schoolmaster in your Bible refers to a servant of the family whose responsibility it was to take the son after he was no longer a suckling and bring him along to maturity to the point where he could out of his own heart do what's right and not be dependent on external restraints from a custodian or a tutor or a schoolmaster, the custodian could provide restraints, give him external guidance, but could not change his heart, couldn't make him mature, couldn't give him the inheritance. That's the way the law functioned with Israel, Paul says here. The law came in to give explicit restraints and guiding principles to Israel But it could not make Israel mature or good, couldn't do anything to the heart of the people. And it could not provide them with the inheritance. And the reason that the law, therefore, did not bring great blessing to Israel is, according to Hebrews 4, 2, the fact that it did not meet with faith. When it came, it didn't meet with faith. Faith. Faith is that mark of maturity that enables a person when they get it to not have so many external constraints, but rather out of a new heart of faith to do what is right naturally because they love what God loves. So the law instructed and restrained this adolescent Israel, as it were. And Israel, instead of responding in faith and reliance on the mercy of God, did what so many of us did when we were adolescents and were told to do things. They rebelled. They resisted. Their necks became stiff and their foreheads became brazen. And the law didn't do anything for them but expose their sin and put them under necessary restraints until the day when God would take away the blindness and begin to give them a heart of faith. When we were talking about this text yesterday in the pastor's prayer and study group, it was mentioned that could could this give some guidance for parenting? I hadn't thought of this before, and I toss it in here because I thought it was a really good insight. There There is some insight here for parenting, namely, don't do it this way. That is, don't be just a law for your children, because if you simply put the restraints on them and give external guidelines... And don't do anything for the inside of the child. Rebellion. It's part of human nature. Therefore, a whole array of other things have to be part of parenting. Prayer, right at the center. Worship, Bible reading, mercy, forgiveness, the gospel. All the feeding into the heart of the child that's going to make him new. And then all your guidelines will be loved and embraced in the long run. Well, getting back to the law and the way it applies to us, the law relates to us the way it related to Israel too. If you have a heart to trust the Lord and rely on Him like a little child, then the law will be very different than if your heart is distrustful and rebellious and self-reliant. If you're the latter person, The law comes to you and you're a rebellious adolescent kind of person. You know what you're going to do? The law is going to feel to you like a burdensome, offensive, deadening job description written out by a a mean task master or school master. But if your heart is really in tune with God, you're resting in Him, delighting in Him, expecting power to come from Him by the Holy Spirit... The law is not like that for you. Rather, you welcome the law as a desired and needed doctor's prescription from a beloved and trusted physician. No patient rebels when he's sick. And a trusted doctor tells him how he will act on the way to getting well. 1 John 5, 3. This is the love of God that they keep my commandments and my commandments are not burdensome. But for Israel, the law was by and large burdensome. And therefore, they responded to it like a job description by which they are now going to earn their way into God's favor. And it just oppressed them and brought the worst out of them, except for a few exceptions. There were great saints. The writer of Psalm 1 and Psalm 119 loved the law. It was no burden to them. That's step number one. The law functions like a custodian and an oppressive one, especially where it encounters unbelief. Second step. Paul said that when faith came, we're no longer under a custodian. So faith, he says, has come. Look at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. Now, what does that mean? Faith has come. I don't think it means before Christ came, nobody was a believer. Can't mean that in Paul's mind anyway, because he said back in chapter three, Abraham was justified by faith. He said in Romans four, when he quoted Psalm 32, that this psalmist was not requited according to his deed, but was justified apart from works. So the psalmist writing after the law was given was justified by faith apart from works. And you take Hebrews 11, and Hebrews 11 is just a long hall of fame of people who trusted God. And who were they? People who lived during the time of the law, mostly. So you can't say that when it says the law came, it meant that before that nobody had faith. It doesn't mean that nor does it mean that justification was by some other means, like works, before Christ came. That's what I've been trying to get us not to think, that the law taught the Galatian heresy, as though God commended to men that they should earn their way into his favor, and thus fall into the the condemnation of the Galatian heresy. No, justification was by faith before Christ came, it was by faith after he came. I think what Paul means when he says faith has come is that by God's grace a period of redemptive history has come in which great numbers of people are exercising faith in God in response to the message of his word. Faith has come means that a great movement has begun in the world and the character of the people in that movement are is that they have faith. They trust God like little children instead of being rebellious or arrogant. When the law was preached, by and large, the response it got was reaction and uh, repulsion and rebellion, not faith. When the law is preached, because God ordains that it be accompanied by the convicting and empowering work of the Spirit, it wins large responses of faith it has spread all around the world to our very day in a great movement of faith and the reason that the law did not win that faith and the gospel does win that faith is not because the law taught a different way of salvation but because the law was not accompanied like the gospel is by that powerful convicting heart-opening work of the holy spirit God wanted to show for a period of time what kind of people there were in the world who simply would take the law and react to it the way they did and thus show their need for the Holy Spirit. Faith has come, therefore, means God is fulfilling the promises of Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 24, that he would pour out his spirit upon his people, give them a new heart, cause them to walk in his ways. Write his law upon their heart. That's the new covenant. And that's what it means that faith has come. But let's not get the impression it's automatic. Because if God were not causing the gospel to be accompanied by the heart opening, convicting work of the spirit, the gospel would shut us up under sin just like the law did for Israel. You remember that from 2 Corinthians 2, where it says the the gospel is the aroma of life to life for those who are being saved, but it is the aroma of death to death for those who are not being saved. The gospel will function just like the law where the Holy Spirit is resisted. And therefore, many people can be hardened by the repeating Repeated resisting of the gospel, just like Israel was hardened when the law came. All of us here who believe in God are living witnesses that faith has come by God's grace into our hearts and has made us new. And if you know the hardness of your heart apart from grace, you give thanks to God every day that you are a believer. That's step number two. Faith has come. Step number three. When we believe, when anybody believes in Christ, that person is so united to Christ that all that Christ is and has is theirs as an heir. I took the family to see... Uh, the Black Stallion Returns on Thursday. I'm a, I'm a horse story nut. And in this story, The Black Stallion Returns, there's a boy named Alec Ramsey whose horse was stolen and taken to Africa. And he stows away on a plane and flies to Africa. And when he gets to North Africa, he sets out to cross the Sahara Desert by himself to get this black bag. And he learns something about the desert tribespeople that saves his life and his mission twice. One of these bad guys tells him, and he's mocking when he says it, these tribespeople have such a stupid sense of honor that when you tell them you would like to be their guest, they have to do it. In fact, their possessions and their life is at stake in giving you protection if you just tell them, I want to be your guest. Well, Alec Ramsey saves his life twice in a pinch when he just says, but I want to be your guest. And a guy almost loses his life in defending him. And another guy about to send him back to America brings him into his household and feeds him. Now there is a great picture of faith in Christ here. If you entrust yourself to Christ and say to him, I want to be your guest. I want to wear the clothes that people wear in your house and and I want to take up your manners and just just be with you. His honor is at stake. He must do it. There's a world of difference in believing that way and believing like I heard something on the radio this morning where. I'm so tired of hearing this. And it comes on again and again. The girl came on and she said on the radio, Do you know how much you're worth? See, this was at 530 and so she's talking real quiet. Do you know how much you're worth? If you were the only person on the world, Christ would have died for you. and Therefore, oh, how much you are worth to him. That turns the gospel on its head. It focuses on my honor, my worth. The Black Stallion has it so much better than that woman has it. The Black Stallion says, the only way you're going to get saved when he's about to boot you out is to pull out your pockets like Alec Ramsey did and say, i got nothing, but I want to be your guest. And your honor is at stake, not mine. i got nothing. I'm so tired of hearing people use... The wonderful, agopic sacrifice of our Lord Jesus for us unworthy people as a ground for claiming our merit and worth. And I want very much for this to be a church who gives all glory to God and simply says, like Alec Ramsey, Jesus, I'd like to wear what people in your house wear and and, uh, act the way they do. I just want to live with you. I want to be your guest. And put him on his honor. He can't turn us away. Because when you say that to him, you are exalting his trustworthiness and his honor so highly that he'd have to deny himself to turn you away. And he will never deny himself. And therefore salvation and our acceptance of it gives all glory to him as Alec Ramsey taught us. When you do that, and he welcomes you into his house, here come the blessings. Verse 24, justification. All your sins are wiped away, forgiven. Guilt is acquitted. You are counted as righteous. And you stand there clean in his house. Verse 26, sonship. If you are Christ's, you are his child. And all that that implies, verse 29 puts it another way. If you are Christ's, you're Abraham's offspring, not just God's offspring, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And I think in Paul's mind, they must be the same. To be a child of God and to be a child of Abraham are virtually synonymous because God made the promise to Abraham and we become heirs of the promises which are God's and which are Abraham's. It's the same wonderful blessing. Heirs of all that God has to give, son of Abraham, son of God. And one other wonderful thing that's given to us in verse 28. When you walk into this house and you get clothed with the garments of Christ, racial, social, and sexual advantages vanish. Verse 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. Woe to the presumptuous guest who tries to enter the house of God thinking that he will gain entrance by virtue of his Jewishness or his status as a freedman or his maleness. The point of the text is that status is granted into this household by virtue of none of those distinctions at all. Ephesians 2.19, Jews and Gentiles are fellow citizens, members of the household of God together. Ephesians six nine, masters and slaves, remember you have one master and he shows no partiality. 1 Peter 3.7, husbands and wives, remember you are joint heirs in Christ, this text ought to remind us that no racial, no social, and no sexual distinctions will gain us any more of God's inheritance than the absence of it. And we must beware of applying any of those criteria for whether or not a person is admitted to the family or ascribed greater inheritance and blessing in his family. Finally, the last step. Since we are all in God's family, by faith, united to him, clothed with him, therefore, we are no longer under a custodian, under law. And We're going to talk about that in more detail next week, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 4, but this morning, at least this much in closing. A custodian keeping us under the law means that we experience the law. And and I know there are people in this room right now who experience the Bible this way. It's so oppressive. It's like a weight on your back every morning, weighing you down, making you feel guilty, miserable, depressed. And you respond to it either in one of two ways. Either you rebel against it and say, enough of that, can't stand it anymore. Gonna go my own way? Or you say, all right, I'll work at it again today. And you muster all your strength, grit your teeth, and exert your effort to get the job of morality done. Made it through another day and didn't commit some horrible sin. And in either case, the letter kills you. You feel it, don't you? It's killing me. The letter kills the spirit. Gives life. So the point of this text and the good news of this text is that we're out from under it. It's not a burden anymore, not because the law has no validity, but because it's no longer a ladder on which we are using our effort, wearing ourselves out, trying to climb into God's heaven. It has fallen, crash, and it's downhill. And we're in a Pullman car of grace pulled by an engine of the Holy Spirit, on the tracks of obedience into heaven. And we're just resting. Basket case. It's not on us anymore as a deadly burden. We're on it, highballing it to heaven. Here's the key, Galatians 5.18. Those who are led by the Spirit are not under the law. Led by the Spirit means God, by faith, has come to me. He is in me, changing my heart into His heart. Making my will united to His will. My emotions are His emotions. I love what He loves. I hate what He hates. And therefore, for me to do what He wills is no burden anymore. It is my passion, my life, my food, my drink. My prayer for us in this congregation is that many of us would learn to so rest in God that the Spirit become our power and that our passion become His command. Galatians 3.5 Does He who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles in you do so by works of law? No. No but by the hearing of faith. If we could but learn to rest in God, He would so fill us with the joy of obedience that we wouldn't have to struggle all day long. My dad wrote me a few weeks ago when I told him I was preaching on Galatians 3. And he said, oh man, preach it because I go from church to church. My dad's an evangelist, works mainly in conservative fundamentalist. Baptist churches and he said I find so few people who know how to live victoriously by the power of the Holy Spirit. Everybody seems to be defeated, struggling, working, miserable, depressed religious people. They don't know what Galatians quote Galatians 2.20 what it means I am crucified with Christ is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me and now I'm just cruising on the tracks of obedience by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would learn with me how to rest in God. It is good news. I'd like everybody to be able to just walk out of here on cloud nine called the Holy Spirit this morning and not with a great load of legal requirements on your back by which you think you have to earn your way into God's favor. Let's pray. Almighty God and gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, would you be pleased right now to cause faith to come? Come, faith. Flow by the power of the Holy Spirit into the hearts of this people. Lift the burden of legalism off their back. May they know that all sin has been atoned for. There is every reason to delight in Christ. And may we walk out of here, every one of us, not just saying, but feeling. His burden is light and his yoke is easy. In his name I pray and for his great honor and glory. Amen.